Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode 28 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Joining me today for our discussion to wrap up Robert Jordan's The Eye of the World is my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? His wife and returning special guest, Lauren McCaffrey. Hi, guys. And, of course, our own sound engineer, Mr. Patrick McCaffrey. Patrick, what's up, dude? Howdy. And I, well, I suppose I should uh, introduce myself now that I think on it. Hmm. I'm your host, Rob Santos. I just realized I hadn't actually written that down here. Yeah. No um, one cares. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. They know who I am 28 episodes in. So, uh, yeah, I mean, going into this episode, I feel significantly more prepared, uh, having made a bunch of notes this time around without really care for future spoilers in this series. Uh, I feel like I have a lot more I want to discuss today. Uh, but first, I want to I, I want to pass this off to Drew so that he can give us a recap as to exactly what we've read in the second half of this book. Drew, take it away, my dude. Yeah, so what we did with our Eye of the World episodes, in case you missed our first episode, is we covered uh, essentially the YA versions of these books. So Eye of the World Part 1, we covered From the Two Rivers, which includes the new Ravens prologue, all the way up through uh, uh, Flight Down the Aranel, which is... Uh, you know, right after uh, Rand and company all get separated at Shadar Logoth. And so it picks up with Rand and Matt and Tom on the spray. And we get uh, Perrin and Egwene. Uh, you know, Egg, uh, Perrin just found out that he's a wolf brother at the end of From the Two Rivers. Uh, we have Nynaeve meeting up with Moiraine and Lan. Early on in this section, we have, uh, you know, Perrin and Egwene encountering the White Cloaks. Hopper dies. Perrin snaps kills a couple children of the light they get captured all that um moiraine and lan and nine rescue them meanwhile rand and matt have a, a very interesting journey down the camelin road and meet up with basil gill in the queen's blessing rand has his encounter with elaine and gawain and elida and morgaze and then um the rest of the crew catches up they all meet together in camelin find out that or figure out that Balzaman is planning to blind the Eye of the World. They travel the ways, get to Faldara, fight their way through the Blight, find the Green Man in the Eye of the World, and we have our concluding showdown. So, that's basically the events of the second half of the Eye of the World. Uh, if you've yeah. read these books before, you should be mostly familiar with that. Uh, if you haven't read these books before, be aware that we will be certainly spoiling all of the Eye of the World, and some things we make reference to may spoil... Uh, things later in the series, but but this is you know a an eye of the world focused discussion. So while some of those spoilers may come in, we're not just going to be discussing the series as a whole or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, I have a lot of points that that draw to later spoilers just because of like I I can find these little seeds that Jordan has planted in here. I mean, there's two or three moments that I'm going to bring up in this podcast where I was like, huh, still somehow after like at least two or three dozen reads of this book i'm still picking up on little things robert jordan kind of thumbing his nose at us like ha when you when you come back to this you know 10 12 books later you're still gonna find these little these little gems that he's hidden in there oh I yeah i appreciate that it was really really cool it's the best part of a lot of the opening books in series i find so, yeah. so that, that reminds me rob i'm assuming you've done the audiobooks right yeah, I did like the audiobook for three quarters of this book, and I finished it off with uh, uh, Mike Kobo. Okay, so do you have that interview with Robert Jordan at the I end? I do. I actually just finished listening to it about yeah. half an hour ago. Yeah, I love how he talks about, he's like, 
you know, I don't really do audiobooks, but I do listen to my own stuff just yeah. <laughs> to make sure that I have planted the seeds well for future books. And if yeah. I haven't, I like to add in stuff. Hmm. Yeah. And he, he claims that his wife, uh, Harriet, was, was excellent, just excellent at catching things where, you know, she would say to him, uh, you didn't quite convince me here. I'm not quite sure what you were trying to say here. And he, and he did say, Mr. Jordan, that uh, he does listen to his own audiobooks so that he can kind of make sure his point came across. And it, and it helps him do that when he listens to somebody else say it. Uh, it, was, it was a really, really cool interview. And at the end of every single one of these Wheel of Time books on Audible, it's the exact same 10-minute interview there. Oh. I, I wish it were, like, new interviews Oh, that every would be time. awesome if it was a different <laughs> but sequential interview every time. That I've heard really that interview cool. so many times now. <laughs> yeah, I've heard, uh, yeah, I've heard that interview 10 times, at the very least. Interesting. All the way through. It's, it's pretty cool. It's also pretty surreal to hear the voice of the man himself. Yes. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, it's really kind of moving. It's, it's just awesome. So, yeah, second half of the Eye of the World. I mean, I flew through it this time around. How about you? Yeah, I, I think um, the pace definitely picked up. Uh, mm. Certainly with, uh, like, Shadar Logoth and the Camelon Road. Um, I do want to talk about kind of, uh, not necessarily, like, the speed of events, but the narrative structure, especially okay. the Rand and Matt chapters. So I'm, I'm curious as to, like, how it was in the audiobooks, because I know those chapters... Um, or, or I shouldn't say I know, I've heard that those chapters in some editions, like some later editions, have been, like, rearranged. Because in really? the original version, those Rand and Matt chapters on the road are, like, they bounce all over the place in the timeline. Yes, they do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Certainly in the version of the audiobook that I have. There's, these, okay. there's even a scene that's repeated. Yes, there that, that happens. <clears throat> there are, like, three chapters in a row where... The chapter starts off with, like, Rand and Matt talking to Hyam Kinch. And then and then it, like, goes, rewinds after a couple of paragraphs that to, like, two days earlier. And then goes up and the chapter ends with them meeting Hyam Kinch and having that same conversation. And then it goes to the next chapter and it does it again. Oh, yeah. What the hell are you talking? I have never heard yeah. or read this particular version of events in That's that order. Yeah. So, so like, for, for instance, I'll, I'll pull up, um, like, the chapter here. That's a very pristine-looking condition of uh, Eye of the World there, my friend. Uh, yeah, this is actually, like, the, like, sixth or seventh copy of this. Uh, oh, I'm sure it is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, it's, I think it's The Dark Waits was the name of the chapter. Um, huh. Which, it was, where it, uh, um, I think on my first read, uh, I, I read a version that had that going on and there was a lot of confusion because mm -hmm. I just wasn't even used to reading in general back then, let alone a book that was so big, um, you know, to 13 or 14 year old me. Yeah. So, oh, so chapter 33, the dark weights, uh, opens with Rand in the back of a cart and, you know, some of the people waved or called a greeting to Hyam Kinch, the farmer whose cart it was, blah, 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 blah. And then you go to the end of the chapter, uh, and you would get a scene with them, like, walking, exhausted, a mile outside the village, his strength gave out, one minute was panting along, etc., etc. Um, and then, Matt gave a grunt of surprise when a cart slowed to a stop before them. A leathery-faced man looked down from the driver's seat. 
something wrong with him? The man asked around his pipe. He's just tired. And and it and goes on, they talk a little bit, and he says, Well, climb up on your friend in the back. If he's sick again, best it's on the straw, not up here. Name's Hyam Kinch. And Hyam Kinch, now, which which stretch of the journey was Hyam Kinch? Because uh, the names of these of these uh, drivers are all getting mixed up in my head. Even all that's a little Hyam bit Kinch. unclear uh, So this is immediate, at the end of the chapter, so they meet Hyam Kinch. Was he Hyam the good Kinch man? Was, right was that after him? they took on uh, Lady Sheen, Millie Skane, the dark friend woman. Yeah, yeah. So the chapter starts with them on his card, and then it rewinds and tells the story of them going up to the oh, dancing you know Cartman what? and meeting her and then leaving and then meeting Hyam Kinch again at the end of the chapter. You know, this is going to sound pretty weird, but it, that could actually be the version of events that I did just read. And it could just be the fact that I've read it so many times and I'm too close to it that I really can't take a big step back and realize exactly what was going on with the timeline there. Um, yeah. I, you know, I actually don't know, but that's something I'm going to I'm gonna pay attention to going forward for any future reads. Sure, yeah. And, and so Definitely. it's... I like I know a lot of people have complained about this and have talked about this particular sequence being like tough to read, tough to kind of get your head around, and and I've heard even heard some people saying they bounced off the book at this point, where they're like you know mm. I I totally lost what was going on, it made no sense, and I just put the book down. Um, but I think what Robert Jordan was trying to do here was playing with the mental state of Rand because these are the chapters when Rand is sick, he's having his final reaction yeah uh or well not final but like second to final reaction to touching the one power this yeah. is immediately following uh calling down lightning in four kings yeah. yeah and so rand is confused so he makes the reader confused alongside rand it's just another way that robert jordan is so good at putting the reader in his right. character shoes. like another aspect of immersion yeah and right and I like it. I like that he did this kind of weird non-linear timeline just for this one section of the books because it fits. It fits for the events. Yes, and he, he doesn't do it again. No. Is the other good part. And you're right, I, I agree completely that the atmosphere of, like, of haze and bewilderment is actually... I mean, now that I've read it a lot of times and I yeah. know what's really happening, you know, I still get that hazy atmosphere and it's really nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the fog parted a little bit, a but the fog scene. is still there. Uh, it, you know, yeah. it, it, it drives home the confusion that the characters are feeling. Yeah, and we know that Matt's going through a lot of the exact same right now as well. Yes, he's not going to remember as much of this as Rand will later, but that's right. for entirely different reasons. Um, yeah. So, what else do we want to discuss here, boys and girls? I got one. Oh yeah, so, hit me. When I started reading the series. I remember going to book group with these guys and uh, discussing it a little bit. And you had a term for huh. Belmont. Yeah, I have that. That's like the first thing I have written down in my notes. Oh, do you? Okay. With the class. I'd like you guys to talk about no, that. No, you, you, go, you guys go ahead. <laughs> so, so basically what Bale Belmont is, as a character in the series, is a like walking, breathing deus ex machina. Deus ex machina. He Belmont. shows up when... The characters need an outlet, need an escape. He Hold shows on, up again? out of nowhere in the eye of the world with his ship, so Rand and Matt can escape. Oh, the bail them on. In okay, yeah. the Great Hunt, out of nowhere, he shows up to give them an opportunity. They don't end up taking it, but to give them an opportunity to escape from Falme. Yeah. He shows up in Ebu Dar later on, 
and he's there, <laughs> so Matt he's has an as well, opportunity to break out, you know, to get the Damane out and escape Abu Dhar. And so we yeah. we call him Deus Ex Domon. <laughs> Deus Ex Domon? Yeah. Again, as we I can get, get later and later into the series, I'm going to be complaining vehemently that this very important theme and arc, like, ceases... Like, where the hell was Domon in the last battle? Like, a shale ghoul, just like his ship going down one of the, the rivers right. of the Blight. It's <laughs> like, hey, I'm here, guys. Oh, that would be great. That would be that would so be awesome. But, but, yeah. No, and Bale Domon's good. great. I love him in this book. Oh, yeah, okay, he's well, fantastic. You, oh, he's awesome. How do you feel about his, his other half, though? Like, is that a problem for you later on? We'll get to that when we get to that. <laughs> yeah. In league with my agent. I was gonna say, yeah, you, yeah, you can't really, uh, you can't really discuss Bale Domon without discussing, you know, another character later in the series as well, since they go hand in hand. God, Robert Jordan is yeah. funny. He, he is, is funny. He's got his he's, shining he, moments. His sense of humor, like, really speaks to me, and um, it, I can't really think of many times where it falls flat, if any. Yeah, certainly not in this book. No. Although th- there's a limited amount of comic relief in this. Compared to other books. And that's that's what I was going to say, is that his humor isn't as pronounced. It doesn't take center stage the way writers like Scott Lynch or Glenn Cook or Matthew Stover yeah. put it in the middle, front and center. Like, it, But when Robert Jordan does decide to write humor in, I nearly always find myself laughing. Yeah, he's, he's he has a dry and subtle approach to it that I think is very refreshing. Yeah, subtle is the right word. There, yeah. there are a lot of points where it's something that like it doesn't slap you over the head with it. It's mm-hmm. if you're not really paying attention while you're reading, you may miss the joke. Exactly. You know, things like naive, yeah. for instance, many times over the series is hilarious unintentionally. Yeah. Like yes. in the yes. scene, yes. there's nothing funny about what's going on, but the wordplay that Robert Jordan uses imparts like a sense of irony to the reader. Yes, you know, things of like naive. You know, maybe losing her temper, and she says, "I'm not shouting." Nynaeve shouted. Yeah, you know things exactly. like that. Yeah, and yeah. Like, like yeah. men think they can solve all their problems with violence. She wanted to or hit them the all with a stick. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those, those blatant self contradictions are part and, of what. And like know, getting old enough time. and uh, becoming an, an astute enough reader to pick up on that is probably when I started liking Nynaeve a lot more. Yeah. Um, because if you if you have the wrong impression of those scenes, she's just kind of coming across as bitchy. When well, that's how that's how when I was that's as a I mean technically it might that. be true, but that's not the intent. Yeah. Of mm-hmm. the of the sequence, yeah. we don't get a ton of that in this book. You know, there there are a lot of things that I feel like people tend to bash on Robert Jordan for. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I've I've seen it a lot. There was even a, a big thread on Reddit fantasy the other day that you're really kind of set me off. I, I didn't respond to it or anything because there were already 600 comments, but this guy basically had a whole rant about how Robert Jordan's a terrible writer and his characters are oh, bland oh and cliche and I think there's you no me development and there's no, yeah. there's no humor, there's nothing laugh. redeeming about his prose and I was just like, I could not thoroughly disagree with this more. And uh, and one of the things that I see a lot of people complaining about is you know the level of detail, right? People are like, oh, I don't need like three pages describing their dress, you know, and uh, and and what it comes down to is that people tend to overblow that. Yes. We don't ever actually get three pages. Like it's usually just a paragraph describing the dresses of the nobles and their sigils, or things like that, you know. And and I actually appreciate that 
because what it does is it paints a really vivid picture for the reader. It serves to help ground us in the world that is a very expansive world. Yes. You know, it's if he wrote, like, Hemingway and had this world, this series would be incomprehensible. We Everybody would be so confused. Like how, like, how does she know that this lord is from this house? Like, well... You just have to go with it if, yeah. if he didn't describe anything. And, yeah. you know, and so it's, and it's especially funny to me when I hear these, uh, these complaints coming from self-professed big time, like epic fantasy readers. Like I, I see it a lot, uh, on, on Reddit, especially from people who are big fans of Malls on Book of the Fallen and A Song of Ice and Fire. And I'm like, have you read A Song of Ice and Fire and Malls on Book of the Fallen? They have yeah. just as much detail as The yeah. Wheel of Time does. And in fact, like, it, there are certain circumstances where Jordan lacks detail, where like Martin would emphasize it, like sex scenes, for instance. Uh, Jordan, yeah. thank kind of God, detail, like glosses yeah. over a lot of that because he realizes that I don't need to read that. Martin, on the other hand, yeah. ick is the word that comes to mind. <laughs> Especially with some scenes, but we won't get into uh, you know. But, you're, but I agree with what you're saying, and that's the the detail that is provided is not superfluous detail. There, mm-hmm. it does serve a purpose. Yeah. And beyond that, what if I like to imagine the book that I'm reading in my head? Hey, what, what a, about what that? a concept? Yeah, it's you know there are some people uh, like this blew my mind when I first discovered this, and this was just recently that there are people out there who are not capable of imaging in their heads as they read. They cannot summon an image of what they're reading. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It, How is well, that even I find possible? That's, I, I find that's part this is of my thing. problem with art, for example. Like, like uh, friends of mine who are really good, like Danielle, for example, shout out to Danny, with, 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 with visual art, they say they can picture these things in their head, or my friend Jordan. I can't really picture anything perfectly in my head. I can picture one or two people. I can picture a room and a scene, but I don't know. I'm I'm part of the group that, like, for the most part, I agree with a, a, pretty much exactly everything you guys are saying. But near near to the end of the series, when the plot wasn't really moving anywhere, and we kept going back to these these kind of I don't know delicate politicking situations between Aes Sedai, and we have all these endless, you know, seemingly endless, I should say, depending on whether you're partial to it or not, descriptions of these of of clothing, of of settings and scenes. For me, it did drag a little, but not. Not at the beginning. Not at this point of the series. It wasn't until books 7 through 11 when I was really starting to feel that drag. Right. Yeah, and I mean, we'll get to that when we get to that, but... Yeah. Uh, but at this point, I'm still fine with it. You know, especially in this book, like, this is our first glimpse of the world. You know, I, I want mm. to know what kind of, you know, clothing Elaine and Gawain are wearing. Yeah. Because this is our first time seeing royalty. I want to know, like, what... Yeah. What the palace looks like? What does like? it look like? What what yeah. am I getting into? And yeah. more importantly, it's Rand's first time seeing nobility yeah, and seeing, yeah. and like him. I was going to talk about that scene in particular, and that it like it really does spark the imagination and open up the world a little bit. That we get to a, a brief little glimpse into this much much bigger thing than Rand had ever had ever experienced. And that was that was exciting and interesting. Um, yeah, a lot of things surrounding that scene were really cool. A lot of foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah. And and That's I funny. also love like the description. We get some of Camelin's culture. Yeah. Not only from 
you know, the main characters, but the descriptions. And I feel like going further on in the series, I understand the different cultures, and I, I like that. I like that he went into that much detail. Yeah. It, it feels more realistic. Yeah, it's, it enriches example, the world. Yeah, Speaking yeah. of uh, cultures, just briefly... Um, yeah, go ahead. Uh, Emmons Field, well, and the two rivers in general, um, mm -hmm. Beltine is a real festival yes. mm -hmm. that was in Irish culture. Uh, are you yeah. sure? Yeah, yeah. I it's, think it's, it's called Beltane. It's, Beltane. Okay, well, yeah. it's in yeah. other cultures too. Let me. Well, it's let me it's look. a pagan festival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, wow. so you'd find it. Around. That's news but, to me. Uh, I didn't know that. You can draw like basically analogies directly across from nations uh, in our world to nations in the Wheel of Time. The two rivers being largely Irish and and or in general being largely England. Although when we get outside of that. While we can still draw parallels, a lot of them have mixed cultures yes. yeah. brought into I, them. I like the Aiel, for instance, are at least in three different cultures. And, and Ara Doman and Taraban. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, I, I think a lot of the complaints that I see people bring up with Robert Jordan's writing in this, I, I just, I don't see any validity in them because they either tend to be like somebody being really reductive or completely hyperbolic about them. Or it, it almost seems like somebody came in wanting to dislike Robert Jordan. Yeah, I, I, I no. see that quite often. Yeah, and, and, and that's, you know, the, this is not a unique thing. You know, there are plenty of people I see in, like, the Wheel of Time forums and, and whatnot who go into A Song of Ice and Fire wanting to dislike George R. R. Martin or go into uh, the Stormlight Archive wanting to dislike Brandon Sanderson because they didn't like what he did, you know, when he took over or something like that. Yeah. And, and you know, and it's it's this weird, like, competitiveness in, uh, in, you know, science fiction fantasy fandom where, like, people get such an attachment to the series they like that they see any other series as, like, the enemy. And instead of just being like, hey, yes. maybe I'll read this and I'll find another thing I love. It's like, I have to go in and tell everybody why it's not as good as the thing I love. Hmm. You know, and that, that like bothers me a little bit, you know, cause like, you know, while I don't, you know, like a song of ice and fire, for instance, it's not my favorite series in the world. It has its problems, but especially the first three books I really liked. I really yeah. liked a storm of swords is one of the finest novels I've read. I but, enjoyed it, but when I, you know, I when you go into a, you know, like that. a forum conversation where you're like, all right, you're like, somebody's like, oh, I have a, a Game of Thrones and I have the Eye of the World. Which one should I read first? The comments just devolve into this like flame war Ugh. instead of everybody being like, oh, you know, they're both good books, and maybe if you like this, you'll like that one more. If you like that, no, you'll I like can't this imagine one more. a scenario where that discussion goes down well on any forum. Right? Yeah. And yeah. so the internet lends itself really well to that kind of narcissistic discussion. That's what I think it yeah. comes down to really is narcissism. Well, you can say whatever you want and there are no Certainly. consequences because they aren't with you. But in I mean, the room. Uh, you don't that, have a relationship with these people. You can do whatever. That's only the part that lets them say like crappy, even stuff. more things, but they, yeah. they the, but, what but you're talking is... about, they, what they feel initially, their dislike for a series based on no rational reason. That is what I think yeah. is the narcissistic element. But bringing this whole... all back to, to my original point, with Robert Jordan's writing style, 
in the eye of the world, and and it's it gets just enriched upon as we go on through the series. The things that he does well in this book just get better as we read on. Yeah. You know, like the humor, while it's very you know um, subtle or not even subtle because it's 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 um it's not a focus in eye of the world. In later books, we get more humor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When we get Matt points of view and things like that, we get Nynaeve points of view. We get different kinds of humor. We get like dramatic irony usually with uh, with Matt, and we in in it's it's Robert Jordan in this book flexing his writing muscles and coming to uh, the foundation for what he can be mm-hmm. that we see develop over the next. 13 books in this series. So. Hell, there's even some points in this book where I would could have wished for much more detail than we got. Like what? The end. Um. The whole, like, since the, from the time they walk into the green man's crib. Oh, yep. Yep. Till the time the book ends. I'm just like, no, wait, stop, more. Hold on, hold on. What is that exactly? What it like? What is the eye well, of the so, world? Let's it, go through it. <laughs> it'd be almost impossible to provide that kind of detail. Well, though. well, and this goes back to what he was doing on the Camelin Road. The reason he didn't give us this much detail is because it's from Rand's point of view, and he's overwhelmed. Yeah, he has no idea what's going on, just as much as we don't have any idea what's going on. Well, the green so, man says a couple things, but then he doesn't keep going. Right. Well, the, he does get yeah, into because it wouldn't be an in like he doesn't need to info dump. Like that's, that would, that's you know, true. that's what that's it would turn true. into is just an info dump. And also his so. memories, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, Someshta is injured; mm-hmm. doesn't have all of his faculties. But, but let's let's move into to characters here. And I okay. actually want to start with Perrin and Egwene. Really? Yeah. Okay. And and their time with Elias and with the Tinkers. Um. This whole section is, for one thing, rife with foreshadowing. Yeah. Uh, but it's <laughs> also, it's, it's extremely formative for Perrin, and in a, in a less pronounced way even for Egwene. Because this is Egwene's, um, like, this is her one, like, foray off her track to being an Aes Sedai. And I think it just goes to show what kind of a person Egwene is here, is that she's she's like a social chameleon in a lot of ways, where when she's put in a circumstance, she looks and sees at like what is what is the thing in this social circumstance I can do to make myself the most important or valuable or or valuable, and in ouch. Well, it's the truth, though. Kind of, yeah. You know, we see her in in the eye of the world in the Raven's prologue. She's in a social circumstance, and what does she want to do? Advance. She wants to get out of it. She wants to be more important than the people she's with. She wants to be done being a water carrier so she can, you know, have, like, you know, have more respect. And then we see her at the beginning of Eye of the World, and she's still in the Two Rivers, but she's, we, we know that she's, been pining to get her hair braided. We find out that she got her hair braided late. She just got it braided at the beginning of this book. Rand saw her for the first time with her hair braided at the beginning of this book on on Winter Night. 
And we also find out that she's like, yeah, I'm going to be the wisdom. And then the moment she finds out that she can channel, she's like, oh, no, screw all that. I'm going to be an Aes Sedai. <laughs> yeah, she kind of does just up and you know, take and, off. Eh? And even in between those, when she's like, I'm going to be the wisdom, instead of saying, yeah, I'm going to be the wisdom for Emmons Field, she's like, well, Nynaeve's young, so I'm just going to leave all this behind and go be the wisdom somewhere else. Right. Forget Rand and how much she supposedly loves Rand. Yeah. yeah. But then... You know, and so then when we get Perrin and Egwene with the Tinkers, this is her one, like, departure from that. This is her one time when she's like, maybe let's not go to Tarvalon. Maybe I won't be an Aes Sedai. Maybe I can just dance and be Did she seriously carefree. consider that, though? She, she never, like... Because we're not in her head, we're in Perrin's head. I never got the impression that she was even considering that for a second. Oh, I very much did. I think she, she kind of led, has one led Aram with Perrin. on a little bit. She has one right. conversation with Perrin where she says, like, what if we just stayed here? Yeah. Is Really? Yeah. yeah. Hmm. And Perrin's like, no, we can't. Oh, that's right, because yeah. Perrin is like, then the Trollocs would come and then you yeah. have all their blood yeah. on your hands. That's right. I remember that conversation now. Um, and So this is like, this is kind of the exception that proves the rule with Egwene. Her time with the Tinkers here. Um, and, and of course, you know, she very quickly, as much as she, like, makes a show of being sad and, like, keeping, like, you know, the reminders of, of Aram and the Tinkers as they leave, she very quickly abandons all of that as soon as she's back with Moiraine and, and has yep. Aes Sedai in her sights. You know, so it, it, it just goes to show, like, Egwene doesn't, really build attachments to people or things. She's just all about what can I do to increase my stature? I was, yeah. I was, yeah. Well, in those, those moments status. where she's caught between Nynaeve and Moiraine oh, and she has funny. no idea what to do are really informative of her character as well. Mm-hmm. Um, She's kind of made her decision, but wants to, like, play both sides of the fence a little bit. You know, to mollify Nynaeve, yeah. but also impress Moraine with how mature she is. Um, <laughs> hypothetically mature. Well, but Isn't there a moment where she's caught between Moraine and, and Nynaeve, and she just kind of looks regretfully at Nynaeve and is like, sorry, but she has to go with Moraine, and that kind of leads to a little bit of a tension between the two perhaps i think i remember that happening specifically at one point i think you're right Barillon. yeah it was, doesn't it was she very, sit down near like directly the in the middle of them in, yeah she in, does yeah, there's she, but i think that's in Faldara no. or camelon no it's it's at the or, in the dining oh, okay. room at the stag and lion in Barillon when nynaeve shows up and yeah. means like that's right when nynaeve the, first appears against the wall and has her hood up yep and because she doesn't want nynaeve to see that she's unbraided her hair yeah and then eventually she sits directly between the two of them when they all sit down at the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think there's another incident where she goes off with Moraine for like training or something, and Nynaeve's just like, you know, yeah, upset about it. Uh, there is never a moment where Egwene is off for training. All of her going off to train before... is before Nynaeve shows up. Okay. Because when Nynaeve shows up is in Berlon, and then from Berlon to Shadar Logoth, they're being chased by Trollocs. And afterward, there's no time for training when they meet back up anyway. Yes. We, yeah, we don't yeah. see them between the rescue and Camelin. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. 
Uh, well, since we're on the subject of Egwene, and like you said, Drew, how Perrin's kind of whole narrative is kind of intertwined with hers at this point, I do have a few points about Perrin that I wanted to discuss too. Yeah, yeah. Um, have we all have we all got our chance to discuss Egwene though? I want to make sure yeah. that we have. Excellent. Yeah, and then okay. some. Yeah, and then some. <laughs> So, and there was a part at the end of part one, actually, I totally forgot to bring this up last episode, but there's a, there was a moment when Perrin is trying to cross the Arenel, and he's almost drowning. And for a second, just for a second, after he releases his cloak, his waterlogged cloak, he considers to rid himself of the weight, throwing his axe. And to me, that was, um, that was a very, very kind of cool moment to read, seeing as how much to do with that axe his his narrative goes in the future um that little throwaway moment was something that stuck out to me not particularly on this read through i had i had already come to expect it by this time around but just in the past few read throughs like in the past few years i didn't realize that little detail was in there and i found it pretty cool i would almost be like willing to argue that's a taviran nudge ah uh, yeah okay yeah um, in a foreshadowy kind of sense, because at this point he's done nothing to where he hates the axe. He's just always had it, and he he doesn't mm. understand yet, right? But that little yeah. tiny inclination could have been the pattern, maybe nudging him a little bit. That's that's up in the air, and probably it's I, ultimately a relevant, a, lot of moments but a like fun that. fun thing to consider. Yeah, little moments where where. A small twist of fortune happens, and and I'm just like, oh, you know what? A little Taviran nudge could be a you know involved here. So, what about you, Drew, Lauren, Perrin? <laughs> yeah. So Perrin, uh, sticking on the the axe thing, this part two of Eye of the World is where we have one of Perrin's most uh, important pieces of advice from Elias. From Elias. Yes. And he tells him, as long as you hate using that, you'll use it. But when you find yourself liking it, that's when you know you need to throw it away. I was going to ask, I couldn't remember if that happened here or next meeting. Yes, that's when, when they're in the steading, hiding from the ravens. There's a pool nearby their campsite. And Perrin is... Because Perrin, while they were running from the ravens, and, and they see the ravens absolutely savage these animals horrific deaths oh, it's awful. and he considers what happens if they catch us yeah and he says yeah. what if i have to kill egwene to spare her from that horror that's right that's right and when uh, if because only he, it, was the, it was the come down from yeah that. and so it was because he even considered doing that he was ready to go throw the axe in the pond and elias stopped him. oh he started to he wasn't yeah. just ready to. He yeah. actually started Elias to. Elias grabbed him and stopped him and said, By the way, that said. scene is so graphic with the fox. Yeah, it's a nuts yeah. scene. Oh, my yeah. God. Oh, it wasn't that bad. I mean, maybe it's just because it's I'm still bad. riding our post-Cain high, but... Like, okay. if they... you pause after and think about it, it's... There is something about here that I wanted to touch on with Perrin and Egwene, and that's that the, there's, there's a kind of implication that Perrin has feelings for Egwene that go beyond friendship. <sighs> Because is there though? Because he specifically says, "I love her," and then he says, "But not in that way." He's, I think he's talking to Elias. Uh, well, so he says I mean, he's talking. He said that to Elias. He says, like, "I love her, but not like that." And then he also says, "But not like a sister." Yeah, um, um, I, I, I can see how people would get the impression that Perrin's feelings say, for it. Care about but I think though. that when you really dig into Perrin's internal, like, uh, thoughts. It becomes clear he he doesn't have romantic feelings toward her. It's more that it's framed in these chapters where 
Aram is the one who sees Perrin as, yeah, like you know, competition, and and Perrin's just like, when when you actually dig into what he's thinking about, he's just concerned that Egwene's like doing something dumb and getting too close to the Tinkers. He's yeah, not. I was gonna say afraid of. He's not like jealous of Aram. That's our proof right there that he doesn't have any kind of romantic interest in Egwene because as a young man, I can tell you that if he did, those scenes with Aram would have bothered him a lot, a <laughs> lot more than they did. Yep. Well, young honestly... Young men and even older men, for that matter. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I remember being think... that age, I would have been... Sorry, go ahead, Yeah, Martin. sorry. I kind of think that had it been Matt instead, even though Matt isn't interested either, I think it would have boiled his blood a little bit. Yeah. Oh, Matt would have... Matt would have Matt's got some more pride than Perrin. endlessly Perrin? tormented Perrin does. Aram if he ever met him. Matt would have had a field day with that guy. Oh man, <laughs> that wouldn't would be that have been awesome? <laughs> Why did we never get some some Matt in in Aram action? That would have been cool. That's, uh, yeah. uh, speaking of of the Tinkers, though, I just, I do want to just bring this up. There was one little bit of foreshadowing that amused me, and okay. it's uh, when Elias is speaking with Rayan and Isla, and. And they talk about how they avoid the cities, and they kind of laugh, and they're like, "Oh, the song won't be found in a city." And, uh, and obviously, okay. So the song, the Tinker's song, we're going to make this mm-hmm. very clear, is not the song of growing. It is no, not, it's not. The, Mr. Jordan's been very clear about that. Too, but yeah. the root of the legend of the Tinker's song is the song of growing, which was found in a city in the Isle Waste. Yes. <laughs> so, um, I just wanted to say that, but <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's totally fair. Um, Matt's character post getting the dagger is really interesting to see his like descent yeah. um, into this, and and the things that stick with him after he's like later on, you know, in the Dragon Reborn when the the bond is finally severed, you know, but we see the first glimmers of these like shards of darkness that don't entirely leave him um his his like suspicion of moiraine is a big thing like he was vaguely like he was in the same boat as matt and uh, and, uh, and rand and perrin yeah. in that they don't know what's going on but he wasn't as actively hostile before to, yeah before the dagger but he is afterward because he carries it for so long um. So I do want to also touch on on Matt and and the dagger, and this is something that maybe I didn't give it enough, uh, you Wait. know, uh, just consideration in the past. But when Warren sees Rand, or uh, and Matt, excuse me, and and she's she says straight out, she's like, "It's a wonder he's still alive that he made it this far." Um, yeah, she says, it is a wonder you got this far carrying this. And then two pages later, when they're talking about, like, what is it? And Nynaeve says, is it catching? I can still treat him. She says, oh, it is catching, and your protection wouldn't save you. And she says, the evil that killed Shadar Logoth is in it, and in Matt, too, now. By carrying the dagger beyond the walls of Shadar Logoth, he freed it, the seed of it. From what bound it to that place, it will have waxed and waned in him, what he is in the heart of him, fighting what the contagion of Mashadar sought to make him. But now the battle inside him is almost done, and he is almost defeated. So, 
the two statements there. She's saying it's a wonder he got this far carrying it. Uh-huh. And then two pages later talks about what actually happened. That statement and those two taken together are a signpost for just how strong and just how good Matt is at his heart. Yeah. Because it is his his core is what is fighting this. And it's lasted this long. To the point where Maureen is surprised he's even still alive. You mean in terms of his ability to resist the corruption? And it's such a juxtaposition against the character of Matt that we see on the page who's so full of suspicion and so so paranoid and hateful and antisocial that it's easy to to think about Matt in these first couple of books when he's got the dagger as like annoying or obnoxious or yeah. you know not like not fun to read not a good character but when you really dig into it it's a signifier of just how great a person he is yeah uh, when he he pulls out a dagger and charges one of the Forsaken when yeah. he's going after Nynaeve. Yeah. Like, yeah. Nynaeve. And Nynaeve, exactly. It's not not, not Perrin, not Egwene, Nynaeve. Yeah. I still think he would have done for well, almost but, but anybody the from like, his village. That it's Nynaeve, like, of all the two rivers people, like, Nynaeve's the one that Matt gets along with the least. She's yeah. the one who punished him the most, who, yeah. who yeah, made his life miserable they the most. Have, they have all this contention, yeah. but when push comes to shove, there was not a second's hesitation no. in the, the face of is. impossible odds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, li- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he had no not chance. Even, not even a <laughs> snowball's chance in the pit of doom. <laughs> Bloody, bloody ashes! Like, in the pit of doom. I like that. I am uh, going to curse for all these episodes, but I'm going to do so in Wheel of Time fashion. I love it. Oh, I like it. Yeah. I was, I was, you know what? I was thinking about opening with a Wheel of Time curse in one of these episodes, and I, I was like, maybe I'll save that. But since I know that's on the table now, I can run with it. Oh yeah. Oh, it's on the table. <laughs> Dude, okay, it's got, on the flaming table. I've got a question though. So when Go you listen it. to the audiobooks a bunch, do you ever find yourself starting to talk that way and like? Like, when you're driving, being like, blood and bloody ashes, come on, woman. You know, yes like, and no. Back, yes and like, no. I don't use it in my daily turn? vernacular, talking to people, but when I'm writing down notes, I find myself using a lot of this terminology sometimes. And, like, for example, I had a, a note down here about, uh, I forget who it was. Oh, it's on my phone, which is turned off. But it was, um, uh, damn, it was, a, it was a clue I had found, and I wanted to write down. I was like, oh, my God, blood and bloody ashes. Like, I was using the the kind of wheel of time cursing in my notes as I was writing this down. Oh, my I'm, creator. I'm, I'm <laughs> gonna say, like, I've never listened to the audiobooks, and I absolutely use, like, especially Blood and Ashes and By the Light or Thank the Light. Thank the Light. I yeah, Thank the Light. The I've, one, I've yeah. actually, yeah, I've definitely used Thank the Light in my, in yeah. my daily vernacular. Yeah, I mean, I, it's definitely in my vernacular. So. Which is, and, and this <laughs> is something that I'll, I'll bring up, like, uh, I have, I have sort of a, um, touch-and-go relationship with proprietary cursing in fantasy mm-hmm. series, you know? Uh, the big one is, of course, Brandon Sanderson, where each of his different worlds has different, you know, cursing systems, so to speak. Like, yes. you know, Warbreaker, you have Colors, and Stormlander Cry, they Storms, Storm You, all that, you know? Like, and uh, Oh, I almost wrote Storming in my notes this time, too. That was a weird oh, moment man. for me. Yeah, it's like, I would never in a million years use Storming. I think that sounds absolutely stupid. Yeah. Really? I kind of like no, Storming. I think it's dumb. Like, I, I, 
it, it does not work for me at all. Uh, there, mm. I, the only one that really works for me among Sanderson's books is uh, actually Skyward. I think Scudding, Scudding. actually oh, sounds like a curse sounds word. Dirty, yeah. Yeah. Um, like I mean, we talked about it on our uh, Reckoners episodes. I hate sparks and slants. Like I think that just sounds. Oh, dumb. and and Warbreaker colors. Yeah, color. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but. Brandon's the cursing in the wheel of time. The cursing in the wheel of time feels like cursing. Yes. Yes. It's it so well good. I mean, there mm-hmm. there are curses. You know, like just the standard blood and ashes, blood and bloody ashes. You know, Nine has one in that carries that weight to it. You know. Get And then and then there are some later in the series when characters get really creative that are just absolutely you know, sheep swallow and bloody buttered <laughs> onions and yeah. uh, and mother's milk in a cup. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're it's it's so colorful and it feels like real cursing. It it fits the world. Yes. Yeah. And I find it hilarious that Elaine likes to collect them all. Oh yeah. Yes. <laughs> that was a, another one of my favorite points in in that scene with Rand and Elaine and Gawain in the garden oh, yes. is where where she curses under her breath and Rand's like I just heard that for the first time from one of the stablemen at the Queen's Blessing yesterday. He was surprised even then. Okay, okay, while we're touching on the curse word, it's many, many times throughout the series it's implied that they use the same curse words we do as well. Yes, it is. But it's just not on the page. I was was going to bring that up. Uh, they'll, They'll say, like... Like, there was one point where Matt, in this book, uh, in Faldara, I believe, starts cursing in a monotone under his breath. And the implication I got from that is he was just going... <laughs> like, you know... <laughs> I'm going to make that just on one that long censor, just so you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, you know, like, that's the implication, because there's so much of... The blood and ashes type yeah. cursing. And flaming And this. flaming, yeah. Like, that's just given to us on the page. So you don't... Although it gets a little boring with Uno, I would say. And and so when you hear, like... Uh, or or yeah. when, when Robert Jordan says, like, you know, Elaine said this under her breath and it, like, made Rand blush. And you're just like, okay, so that... She was, like, dropping legit, like, yeah. F-bombs and C-words and stuff. Yeah. And, like... Yeah. And, <laughs> Yeah. So no, there's like one time where Rand's like yelling at Avienda, and he's like, "If I offended some bloody Aiel custom, I don't give a." Mm-hmm. Like, it's like mm-hmm. we know what he was gonna say. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> yeah. Shit, I was Thanks, actually Rand. I considered these particular moments. I thought so, you were just talking about moments where it says, you know, oh Matt let out a soft curse or something like that. I didn't actually stop to consider these moments where it's a little more blatant than that. Yeah. Pat, the one that you just brought up with Avienda, I totally for, I, that that one's stick that one's reading clear as day in my memory. I actually mm-hmm. didn't stop and consider this though that yeah yeah got to say something that we could probably imagine what it was. <laughs> but uh, sticking on characters, uh, shall we move on to Rand here? Yes, because there's a lot to talk about with Rand in the second half of this book. <laughs> this, is there ever? Yeah, I mean, want to kick us off, my man? Sure. Uh, so Rand in the second half of this book is. It's the first time we see him really having to take control of his surroundings because he's alone with Matt and Matt is under, you know, the sway of the Shatter Logoth dagger mm-hmm. and Rand has to be the leader. These are the first signs that we get that Rand can when necessary lead. 
and he can adapt to his circumstances and do the right thing, do the smart thing. And he's still learning. He still makes some mistakes. But, you know, his his handling of uh, the dark friends on the road, especially Pater in uh, Market Sharon. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Uh, which, okay, quick aside here. Uh, again, going back to that scene where Moraine is talking about the dagger, and she... Uh, she says that, like, I felt the evil of it when I laid eyes on him, the touch of Mashadar, but a fade could sense it for miles. Um, some dark friends could probably feel it too. Those who have truly given away their souls. And then they mention, yeah, they were dark friends on the road. Yeah. But that tells you Howell Goad, Millie Skane, and Pater, the peasant boy from Market Sharon. Yeah. Are, like, the bad of the bad. Yeah, they, they went far. That... Well, did... Because how, they're how, the ones who sensed it. They're the ones they, who were drawn hmm. to the dagger. And, it, like, it recontextualizes things, especially with Pater. I mean, we see Millie Skane, the Lady Sheen, whatever you want to call Again. her, many times later in the series, and we know just how, like, how far gone she is. But Pater, we only see him one more time in the series. And that is in Amador, when he is captured and hanged mm -hmm. by the White Cloaks. And yep. if you're not paying attention, you may like have forgotten that Pater from Market Sharon was a dark friend way back in Eye of the World. Because in, yep. in Amador, he's trying to help Morghese escape from the White Cloaks. And for once, we see yeah. the, the White oh, Cloaks actually well. execute oh somebody for yeah. being a dark oh, friend and being this right. Is, yeah. It is the same? It, 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 it's this the same is guy, yeah. the, <gasps> as, as far as I can remember, the only <laughs> time in the series we see the White Cloaks actually execute a dark friend. Right. And like, what, what, um, it was, I forget the guy who was showing it to more gays, but he was like, they were worshiping the dark one and chanting some catechism yeah. to it. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, shit. Like, yeah. Okay. Like, like he, he was part of like a cell of dark friends in Amador. Yeah. Pather doesn't look around. Like, like this kid not. comes off as just, like, bumbling, like, oh, like, maybe he made a mistake kind of dark friend. It's like, no, this, this kid was, was bad news kind of a thing. <laughs> See, the only, the only point of contention I would have to, to that point right there would be specifically about Howell Goad. I mean, they, they mentioned how he went to, like, every inn in, in town before he found Matt and Rand. He didn't know them until he actually laid eyes on them. But he knew if they he were there. If he could sense them, if he could sense them, then why go to like the other twenty inns first? Well, it's it's not like an absolute beacon. It seemed like he I needed mean, Pater, to visually recognize them before he actually. Pater found was them. the same way. He he walked in to the to the uh, inn, and was like turning around to walk back out before he like stopped and noticed. Yeah, okay. yeah. it might not be as accurate as like a Murdral or, or well, or even Murdral, not... it's not accurate because there's the Murdral. Yeah, exactly. That's like twenty feet so, from them at a uh, Carries Ford that doesn't. It knows they're around, but it doesn't know exactly yeah. where. It's it's not as heightened as yeah. channeling. Well, well so Moraine, oh, again, in that close, same yeah. scene, she describes what it would be like, and it's like the air itches around them. Oh. Yeah. So when they know they're nearby somewhere because they're compelled. Actually, I think Moraine even goes a step farther and says they wouldn't even know what it was, just that they're yeah. feeling yes. something. and they're drawn yeah. to yeah. it, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, as a magnet draws iron filings, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, okay, but yeah, yeah, but so for, for Rand, like the way he handles Pater, for instance, in Market Sharon, like he, he handles that with aplomb, 
I mean, he, he does pretty well on that. Like, Did you say a plum? He decked the dude. That wasn't a plum. No, like, like he 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 handles it well. Like, he, he oh, doesn't... I thought I heard you... A plum for some reason. No, oh. I said a plum. What? what? Yeah, like, uh, maybe, I'm, maybe I, at first, I'm thinking like, of the he, word... He, he handles Pater. Like, he's just immediately... Immediately, he's like, you're a dark friend. Get out of here. We don't want anything to do with you. Leave. And they just get up, and Rand's like, all right, I'm out. And he just, like... Starts yep. walking out, and Pater chases after him, and that's when Rand turns around and decks him. Huh. You want me to? You want me to read the scene? No, no, I believe you. I just <laughs> I'm thinking that I actually didn't learn the word aplomb correctly. I think I have a, a, a incorrect uh, definition in my head. I thought aplomb meant with grace and subtlety and kindness. Is that not what that word means? Well, I mean, like, that's what my point is, is that before Rand had to deck him, he was just like, you're a dark friend, leave us alone, I'm leaving. Okay. Yeah, he was. I mean, he was being gracious to begin with. It wasn't until Pater actually grabbed him on the way out and he had that kind of PTSD but, flashback but, but where to, he just went to, uh, and just To expand on that, though, the, him. the um, like, maybe maybe you did have, like, a little bit of a, a misconception of aplomb. Sure, like, yeah. So you said, like, with grace, like, aplomb is just, like, like self assurance. Oh, okay. Uh, like like okay. confidence. Like you 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 handled uh, things. Yeah. Rand and that's that's a good way to describe Rand throughout this book. Yeah, so like I did kind of kind he's, of not know He's it scared yet. a lot of the or time. Learned it but correctly. he's he's never cowardly. He's always Yeah. He's never cowardly. He's and he's always fighting. He's he's always and he holds on to hope even when it looks really forlorn. Yep. Um like it's the glimmers of the badass that he's going to become. Yeah. Like I, I believe I mentioned last time, we see a lot of the, a lot of Rand's early sparking in this book, when and yes. it, all the scenes in the world of dreams, which are great scenes, every one of them. Yeah, yeah. With Baalzaman, mm -hmm. um, where he's like, he thinks it's the Dark One legitimately, and he's like, no, like. No, no, no. This is not going to be a thing. I'm not. Yeah, like he's, I'm not. Whatever it is that you want me to do, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, he's cool terrified, <laughs> but he's still resistant. Yeah, you know, he's he's still. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I I fully agree there, and and I also fully agree. All of the, as we know now, dream shard uh, scenes with Balsamon in this uh, in Eye of the World are. Excellently vivid, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, oh yeah, they're dream shards, not the world of dreams. Yeah. In in mm -hmm. we find that out. I, I think it's not till a memory of light. In fact, yeah. When Rain is talking with, with, oh, I, maybe that's yeah. with yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but but um, I mean, I mean, the details in them are so cool. I, you know, the the endless hallways with the dripping water. I think like that's that's one thing that will always stand out to me is the dripping water in the distance. Mm -hmm. That Rand keeps hearing during you know when he's running up and down the halls trying to escape, and there's always dripping water, and like for some reason that's that's so creepy mm -hmm. to me. Gives mm -hmm. it a very surreal flavor, yeah. Yeah, and then and then of course there's you know the dining room with the the fireplace of screaming faces in the stones, yeah, and the wild yeah. clouds outside. And okay, speaking of speaking of this moment, let me just um, Kariel Thor, right? Okay. Now, oh goodness. That's like it. It would be easy to dismiss what happens in this book as Baalzaman making some sort of illusion. 
if it wasn't for the fact that after um, Rand does his thing, um, she remains. She remains, and she says, "Thank you, my son." And it pisses off Balzaman. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, and and so I'm I'm with you, Pat. I think that that really was, uh, Kari Althor's soul. Um, there are some holes in that, uh, because we know, um, due to Balefire, essentially, mm. and the mechanics of Balefire, we know that the Dark One cannot grab a soul to transmigrate because there is a window for him to do so. And that Balefire causes him to miss that window because they died before, you know... They right. died before they died. Balefire come into this though. Well, so let me finish. If he did indeed have Kari Althor's soul, that means he must have grabbed it and has been holding on to it ever since she died. Which is depressing. It's depressing, but also how would he have known to grab her soul when she died? Because that was well before he had Pat and Fane focused on the two rivers and knew, like Pettifin only knew it was one of the three of them three years ago. Well, and Rand's mom died when, when he was, when four? he was way young. Yeah, but does the great Lord of the dark or whatever, the dark one have to have collected her soul because he knows who she is. Maybe like she says, the, you know, the great Lord of the dark has a honeyed tongue for unwary souls. Maybe he's just collecting them as he can. I mean, maybe that a, that that would help possible. fill in the hole if he just like automatically grabs souls as they die. A, a less, he, so those that he can, like he can't grab all of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A less maybe she just fell um, for it. Tidy explanation, but one that I think is the correct one is. I mean, logically, everything that you said is right on the money. However, I think um, that's just one of those details that Jordan had not nailed down at this point. Makes sense. I was, I was, that was going to be the next thing I, I was so, going to go to. Like, yeah, there, because there are things, as we discussed in the last episode, there are things that he had clearly not um, figured out, and many of those weird things that break the rules happen during that sequence at the end of this. Book. Right. So, yeah. I will also say, and this, uh, you know, this is a, a shout out to uh, Ebony in the Wheel of Time group. Um, oh yeah, Ebony. I'm, I'm gonna. Because uh, she's she's a particular proponent of a certain theory about uh, Nikomi. Ah. Oh. Which, yeah. Which theory does she? That Nikomi okay. is Tigraine. Oh, uh, Tigraine? That, really? That Nikomi... Yeah, no, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. Uh, yeah, I was... Because Tigraine died. That took me off. And right. if the Dark One does indeed grab souls as they die... Nakomi cannot be Tigraine. I mean, there are, there are many other issues with that, but but that's I'm just going to point that out. So, <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, many other issues, but we without without going into any more details about Nakomi or Tigraine, I'm just going to put that out there. So, <laughs> um, yeah, but but yeah, I there there are a lot of things in that last segment that are kind of wild. And actually, there's one more thing I do want to talk about that's a, kind of a common misconception. Um, and it's with the black cable yeah. stretching oh, off. This is yeah. connection to the dark yeah. one. Well, so, 
yeah, when when Rand fights Balsmont at the end here, you know, he's he's fighting, and as he's fighting, he sees this thick black cord pulsing off of uh, Balsamon. And Rand notices also there's like a, a pulsing cord of light from him, like connecting him to the eye of the world, right? Yeah. And so Rand shapes the one power into a sword of light and cuts off that black cord and then stabs Balsamon. And then in uh, The Dragon Reborn, and again in The Shadow Rising, we see a similar description, but not the same description, with Baalzamon and then with Asmodian, where there are black, many black cables stretching into, like, the infinite blackness behind them. And Rand cuts them in both of those scenes. So, a lot of people tend to think that they're the same thing. They are not the same thing. So in this book, the black cord that Rand cuts is Baalzaman's essentially conduit of the true power. Right. He's he's severing him from the true power. So he's almost yeah. shielding him in a way. Essentially, yeah. Whereas the black cables that he cuts off of Baalzaman and Asmodee later are the Dark One's connection and protection from the taint. Because they're using the one power in those... Well, Asmodian has to be, because yes. he doesn't have true power yeah. access. Correct. And, well, well, they they both have the cables right. all the time anyway. It doesn't yeah. matter if they're actively using it or not, because the, the Dark One doesn't want them, you know, obviously going insane. But, but that's just, like, a, another big misconception that I see a lot, and I wanted to kind of clear the air on before we move okay. on to yeah. anything else. Okay. Um, just a couple of uh, other characters I wanted to talk about uh, really quick. Number one being Jeffrem Bornhold. I wanted to discuss him because I thought he was a really, really cool character. And this is why. I mean, the entire interrogation scene between himself, Perrin, and Egwene, that was, I mean, that was so, so tense. And I never really appreciated, um, until now, like what a detached, intelligent, logical white cloak actually looks like. You know, we get a couple other examples throughout the series, and you know, the most notable ones being Pedron Nile and Galad Damodred. But by then, both men are not particularly consequential to the fate of our immediate, you know, main characters. But in this scene with Jeffrem, we get this kind of nerve-wracking interrogation from a man who is smart enough to listen rather than speak, and then he hits you with unsettling questions. You know, after their whole made-up origin story, for example, his only comment is, "There's no order in that." And like, like for the first time reading this book, eleven-year-old me was like really getting nervous when he said that. It was like it kind of spoke to me like every time I had been caught doing like wrongdoing myself, and there's this big scary adult that was being entirely too calm. I don't know. It just it, it kind of it kind of made gave gave me that unsettling feel, and I just wanted to give a shout out to to Jeffrem Bornhold, and I just want to say also that it's just too bad that. Jeffrem had to die, and that we were stuck with his stupid son for yes. the rest yeah. of the series. Who apparently uh, learned none, nothing from his father. Nothing at all. I would also like, uh, on the subject of Dane Bornhold, just to throw a rumor out there. Okay. Um, a TV show rumor. Oh. Tom Felton. Draco Hold Malfoy. On. Oh, as, as Dane Bornhall? He is apparently in Prague right now and is taking, like, sword fighting lessons. And really? one of the rumors coming out is that he may be playing Dane Bornhall, uh, Gawain, or Galad. 
I, could see, I think Dane Bornhold is probably the most reasonable of all of those. I, I, I think uh, so, too. We don't see Bornhold do any so. sword fighting for the first, like, significant amount of the series. Well, none of if those ever, characters ever really would see need sword Dane fighting. Dane Bornhold actually kick an ass? Well, I mean, he's, wow, his he, connection he's really in slow scenes, like, you know, that. with a sword and stuff. I mean, he, so he'll, he'll need to know that, but... And it's certainly something that would happen eventually. Yeah, like there, like he has to fight in. Um, no, nah, we'll we'll get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah. like, so just just to reiterate <laughs> this for for our listeners, obviously we we are spoiling some things later in the series as they are uh, pertinent to our discussion, but we're not just gonna be outright spoiling everything. Like, if we can avoid spoilers, we'll avoid them. But if it's important, you know, we'll, yeah. we're not going to dodge discussing them. But anyway, uh, but I, I agree with you about Jeffrey Bornhold. I the first time I read this book, I remember like liking him almost, and then being really frustrated yeah. by him for not yeah, just for letting not them go. Yeah. Well, know? I feel like his logic is incomplete. Well, and that's yeah. that's like the well, post heart of a white cloak, right? You know? Yeah, yeah that's true. You know, it's, well, it's like, Galad, I don't know. Galad is like they they the best of the white cloaks have the good intentions but have biases and ignore information or don't have all the information. So they're, like, really frustrating, where you're like, you could be a great guy, but instead you're you're so not. Like, well, I mean, <laughs> what is the classification of Galad if we were doing a D&D game? Lawful good. Lawful oh, yeah. good, right? But I don't know if all the white cloaks... Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not so saying that Galad is... So where would you put is... Dane, like... Oh, Dane's, like, a lawful evil. Well, no, because, I mean, well, it depends on what part of his journey and you're talking about, because he does have an art himself. So, Jeffram, I'd say, is also lawful evil. But what? they have different, like, uh, uh, personalities within the bounds of that. So. He's so close to being lawful good. I don't. At times. Well, at times, it feels like he could be. Maybe you could make an argument for, like, a lawful neutral. But. That's what's the argument I'd probably make. Um, but since we're still on Jeffrey, before we get off of him, there's one little, little nugget of foreshadowing that I found in here, um, and that was when Jeffrey asks Perrin, "Who told him that wolves hate Trollocs?" And then Egwene cuts with, like cuts in. And she just comes to his rescue. And she says, "A warder," and then Perrin relaxes, grateful, and I quote, "That she didn't mention Elias." That made me laugh. I did not catch that one until now. Oh yeah. That was, that, was a, that was a pretty cool little moment. I was like, ha, I see what you did there. Egwene trying to be helpful. <laughs> at the end of, well, not even at the end of this book, we actually found out from Lan later on in this same book that Elias was a warder, right? So, yeah. Cool little moment there. But yeah, so I, I think we're, we've kind of gone through pretty much all the principal characters here. There's, um, there's not yep. much to be said about Lan or Moraine yet that has not been exactly. said already. Uh, I think I yeah. Sums so, it up in my so part we'll one. get to that too. I, I want to hear uh, from each of you your three favorite scenes in the Eye oh, of the World. Shit. I forgot to consider this. Yeah, I'm ready. All right, yeah, you <laughs> go can all go uh, in chronological order because I can't really rank them. Um, the scene where Moraine tells the story of Manetherin. Ooh. Um, the scene in Camelin where Rand sees Loghain. 
the whole build up, you know, the whole thing, and then and the subsequent. I'm lumping that in with with the context later on. Yes, yes. With, yeah, well, yeah. well, not only that, but the subsequent scene with Elaine and Gawain. Okay, and, you right. know, I'm taking it all as like. Alright, I'm gonna laugh if you have the exact same three scenes as I do. <laughs> and the final climactic battle at the Eye of the World. Okay, so you don't have the same three scenes as I do. Okay. Alright, I'm gonna add to it. Yeah, what's okay, your what's right, well, one? So, so my three are, as Pat said, the uh, Moiraine's story of Manethrin. Um, Specifically, my second one is Elida's foretelling. Yeah. Uh, I, I. The tension written into that scene. Ugh. This is, again, like, going back to, like, anybody who says Robert Jordan isn't a good writer, like, come on, man. Like, this scene is so Exhibit fraught. A. Like, it's, <laughs> it's so tense. There's so much pressure built into it, where we have an, another eye Sedai, who, like, Rand was seeing, you know, from, from very much a remove, as a potential ally, and then she becomes so sinister and so threatening because she has knowledge that could ruin Rand. And the second half of her foretelling, when she barely whispers it so that only Rand can hear, and that line where she says, pain and division comes for the whole world, and this man stands at the heart of it. Mm. Yeah. And good, you're just like, good stuff. All right. You know, that was, oh, so good. Such good blood, writing. A lot of ashes. It was and, and I also want to put, like, just from, like, a, a sentence-to-sentence perspective, the fact that the first half of that foretelling that she spoke to the whole room uses mirroring language there. She says, pain and division comes to Andor. Yeah. And then the part she whispers to Rand, pain and division comes to the whole world. Like, it's... Oh, I, I cannot say enough good things about that. Yeah. Uh, what what Robert Jordan wrote there was a, a stroke of genius. But my third scene is Agolmar's history of the fall of Malkir. Oh, okay. Damn, I hadn't considered that one. That's yeah. No, that's a very good scene too. I'll, I'll yeah. Okay, so so adding on to your Elida scene, I just want to say like yeah. the reread. Well, no, first read. I was like, oh no, she's gonna take him. Like, right here, she's she's gonna prevent him from leaving, there's gonna have to be rescue. This is so bad. And then, on top of that, his denial of, like, what he just heard for the next two books? Yeah. Yeah. Like, nope, 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 no, nope. No, no. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like, there's this theme, right? It, like, kind of in the second half of the book. And... It is truths coming to light. It is Rand, at the end of the book, learning that he can channel. Mm. You know, we, mm-hmm. we have enough hints throughout the book that an astute reader is like, oh, maybe Rand channeled there. Oh, maybe this is pointing to one or more of the three of them at least being a channeler. And even when they don't overtly admit that, Especially that comes to a head in, in that same scene with Agomar and Faldara, where, like, Agomar immediately leaps to the conclusion that they're channelers. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, Maureen, you're not Reda Job, but surely even you wouldn't. And she soothes him. <laughs> She's like, oh, don't worry, it, they're Taverin. You know, that's yeah. why. 
It's not because yeah. they're channelers, you know. But then at the end of the book, we're that. confronted with the reality: yes, Rand can channel. And in the scene with Elida's foretelling, we're confronted with the reality that yes, Rand is at the heart of you know the, the, these are these like hard truths that the characters have to come to. Again, in the second half of the book, Nynaeve has to confront the fact that she can channel as much as she doesn't want to admit it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, they're hard truths that each character has to confront about themselves over the course of the book. And and this is going back to that like that Reddit thread I saw where the guy's like, there's no character development, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, get the hell out of here. Like, of, like there's so much character <laughs> development in these books. Like, And, uh, you know, so... That that's just like a rant I had to go on here, but Lauren, I'll, I'll let you continue your your three. Well, have Rob go first. Oh, Rob, okay. Oh, let me go first. Okay, sure. Um, okay, so I wasn't really considering my three favorite scenes, but I have been thinking over the course of this brief discussion here. So I'm going to list them. Now, my first favorite, I would say my third place, um, uh, would be the one that we have discussed already. That was Moiraine's story about the the origins of those in the two rivers and the story of Manetherin. Um, my second favorite would probably be the Battle of the Camelin Road, where Moiraine really gets to be a total badass and just ripples the earth and, 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 and casts walls of fire and, and protects the entire, you know, team from the Trollocs. I mean, that was just awesome. Land, you know, blade against blade with the Murdral. You know, the, the, three river, uh, the three rivers, the three boys from the two rivers uh, battling, to, you know, just to, just to stay on their horses. I mean, that was a really, really tense scene. I loved how much action was in there. It was just spectacular. I would love to see that on the, on the big screen. That would be phenomenal. And my third favorite scene is not really particularly one scene. It's actually a point that I wanted to discuss. It's actually this just one notable day in the life of Randall Thor that happened. And it wasn't something that I noticed all of this happened on one day until I was actually on this read. And it was everything happening in chapters 40 and 41. All right? So think of, just, just imagine this day that Rand is having. What were the chapter so, names for those? This, uh, the chapter names, I'm not sure, but it was 40 and 41. I could get it on my e-reader right Grab here. Grab my book. So this is The Web Titans and Old Friends and New Threats. Okay, all right. So yeah, yeah, I, I got you. So there's so much stuff happening on this. So it starts with, the day starts with Rand waking up, and he's going to go see Loghain in the streets of Camelin. He heads downtown, and he ends up seeing the false dragon. And then he accidentally falls into the palace gardens, and he meets, of all people, the bloody daughter heir, right? Then he's brought to the queen herself. He's interrogated by her and another Aes Sedai. He's facing prison and potential execution. And then he hears the foretelling from Elida, right? Big deal to him. Returns to the Queen's Blessing, he finds white cloaks there, waiting for who he thinks is him, right? And then Moiraine just suddenly shows up in the kitchens! And I thought, like, I hadn't really realized before how much the narrative pace was picking up around this point of the book. I mean, this is all in one single day that's happening to Rand. And then, of course, what happens immediately after Moiraine shows up? She reveals the true nature of Matt's sickness and the corruption that's following him. What a day that Rand is having. And then we find out that the eye of the world is the target. And then we mm-hmm. find out about the ways. Yeah, like this, like <laughs> Rand yeah. falling off the wall is, narratively speaking, the beginning of the climax. And, yeah, you know, we talked just... about Brandon Sanderson and the Sanderson Avalanche. Eye of the world has a Sanderson Avalanche. And that's the start of it. Yeah. No, you're like, not wrong. Like, I mean, it makes I sense. Mean, 
look, let me pull out my book here and just like look at page count here. So so it's a uh, it's about seven hundred and eighty pages long, and uh, it's yeah. So the Web Titans chapter forty starts on page five ninety four. So about just about two hundred, maybe maybe one hundred and ninety pages of the book is just climax. It's a Sanderson avalanche. It's pretty nuts. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, Lauren. I agree. What you got? Okay. So, definitely Tom Marilyn and the Murderall. We haven't Ooh, talked about that. Oh, yeah. That was a hell of a scene. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and I, nothing else needs to be said about Tom other than what a boss. What a boss. And also, yeah. it really hurts me the rest of the series that he's injured from this. Yeah. Uh, and and he didn't really have I mean I get that he was projecting Owen on Durand. What? I'm sorry. Rob didn't have his third one. Oh, sorry. No, Rob. that was my third one. That, that my third one was that whole. Oh no, you game. did the Camelin Road. All right, I'm. I the Camelin Road I was my second Jeez, one. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Lauren. Continue. But yeah, so I get that he's projecting Owen, but uh-huh. I'm not sure there's been as much of a bonding here for him to like lay down his life like he thinks he's going to you know Mm. and and protect the boys you know i I don't necessarily agree where do you think they bonded though because it's not just it's not just owen though that's a big part of it and he's only like suspicious that one of them could yeah. channel. He doesn't know for sure. But like with Matt going after um, Agenor and Balthamel to, to attempt to save Nynaeve. You're saying it's a character That's reflection. a kind of thing, yeah, because... Okay, I don't like, know. He's selfish sometimes, though, and further on. Tom is? Well, yeah, but... Tom? There come times when, you know, he doesn't know what's going on, but he knows, like, this is a big deal. That... If the, and it, he's a servant of the light, and if the Dark One wants something, he probably opposes it. Yeah, fair enough. You know, the, I, I think that's legit. to lay down your life, I think most, most people aren't going to do that. Maybe. They'll say it. He, he probably would lose <laughs> a fight like against really a murder wants to say something. So there's, there's more to it than that, and I think it ties into Tom's station in life, where he mm. used to be an important man. Yeah. He used to be a court bard. He has... As much as he will talk up the station of a gleeman and all of that, <laughs> Tom, I think, very much sees himself well on the downswing on his life. Yeah. And he, he's he been wrapped up in these events, and he's old. He's an old man. He's getting tired. Mm-hmm. He's seeing his prime is behind him, and he sees an opportunity to say, hey... I can do one last good thing in the world. And go out like a boss. Yeah. That's how I, I saw it. Worthy yeah. of a song, It wasn't perhaps. necessarily him yeah. being like, I have this tight bond with these boys. I do think he cares for Randy. Of course Matt. he cares, but... But, but I think it was, it was more a, a, a result of his own view on his life and where he was in his life. Okay. And he just kind of had a fatalistic attitude and said, you know what, if I'm going to go out, because I feel like we're 
we're screwed one way or another. We're running from the inevitable. If I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out, try and delay that inevitable, mm-hmm. and do some good. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense to me. Okay. So, two more scenes. I'm trying to avoid the ones that you guys have talked about. You don't so, have to avoid them. You don't have to. I mean, they're your favorite of, scenes. They're your favorite scenes. Like, I really do love the madness scene at the beginning of the book. Oh, with Luce with Theron. Theron. Oh, yeah. Dragon Mount. Like, okay. that really did get to me. It is a me. boss scene, yeah. Read one, I was like, oh, yeah, here we There's go. There's just so much to be This is so about. dark. This is, you know, mm-hmm. this appeals to me. Like And the dichotomy, again, between his surroundings and his personality, I want to draw back yeah. to that again, is just so well done. And, and I mean, if you want to go along that road with him, you're kind of like, oh, yeah, where is everybody? You know, what is... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't know. I, I like that. Number three? Okay, number three. We haven't talked about Mashadar. Oh, Shadar ah, Logoth. Logoth. Okay. Yeah, very creepy. Minds of Moria... Sort of. Minds of Moria, yeah. Yeah, that's like where you got that. the oh, Minds of Moria. Oh, that's an interesting parallel. I, I never even in thought of like, drawing that. It's huh. not 100%, obviously, but... Well, See, I thought the waves were more like Moria. Okay, maybe yeah, the that's waves, what I was too. Thinking. Let's bring them both up. But there's no... The islands well, floating as far as... in the endless dark that could that, into which you can fall in this giant evil presence that you can't fight. It's just, your swords are useless, run. You know, that kind of thing. Oh, I got yeah. definitely The aesthetics of the waves are Minds of Moria-esque, but... And the okay. threat. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know. I like I like both of those. I don't know. I like the okay. dark stuff. So 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 Shadar Logoth was your third third scene? What what in Shadar Logoth specifically? I don't know. It's it's fun when you like, You can list when, the entire they, sequence. What? I, mean, I just listed two whole chapters yeah. as my favorite third scene, I, so you could just say the entire sequence. Wanted to briefly comment that the re- I remembered the reason why I thought um, Shadar Logoth reminded me of Moria, and that's where Paden Fane, who is very reminiscent of Gollum, sort of becomes who he is. He's already following them at that point, but that's when he gets in contact with Mordeth in Shadar no, Logoth. No, it's not until he steals the right? dagger in Faldara Keep. He doesn't What's even have anything to do with Moria it. there. Well, Gollum's following them through Moria. But isn't it in, isn't it in <laughs> the waves when Land says... He doesn't like, it... come in contact with Sauron in Moria. Like... Maybe I built that but... up to be slightly more relevant than it actually again, turned out to be. In the ways, isn't it Moirin and Land who says, someone's following? You know, yeah, That's it, where it I really is, got it's to... It's in the ways the, where yeah, they realize Gollum that he's following. Live. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> We're just going to brutally beat down... <laughs> Sorry, Pat. I can take oh, no. it. But, uh, but so, so that was all of our top three scenes, right? Yeah. Okay, yep. so for our listeners, uh, I, I want to hear what you guys think. Uh, hop on the Inking Out Loud Facebook page. Let us know what your top three scenes were in The Eye of the World. And, uh, you know, and we're going to be doing this with every book in the series. So, like, you know, maybe we'll do a little, uh, you know, poll at the end. Yeah, Compile poll. some stats, see what everybody thinks uh, the that'd best be, scenes in the series cool. are. That'd be awesome. So, uh and we can do, you know, book by book ones too. No, well, yeah. that's what I'm like, saying. Like, at we'll the end of the thing, like, every book. And, yeah. yeah. At the end of each book, like for the Great Hunt, we're going to have two separate parts, or is it going to be three? I can't remember. Well, we'll uh, Great Hunt, we're going to do two episodes. Oh yeah. So, so again, for the listeners, uh, the we're planning half. on doing two episodes per book for this, as we've been doing. There will be a couple of them that will get three episodes. 
Uh, Shadow Rising for sure is one of them. Lord of Chaos is Lord one of them. Lord of Chaos, yep. Uh, a Memory of Light, obviously. Um, if, you know, things necessitate it, we may uh, expand. Obviously, these episodes are already longer than normal. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, but, yeah, we will only do the three favorite episodes, or three favorite scenes at the end of the books. So we're not going to like, you know, we're not going to make you choose your three favorite scenes for yeah. the first 180 <laughs> pages of The Shadow Rising. Oh, Although to be quite honest, I could already tell you one of my favorite scenes in the book is I in the first 180 the pages, but sit down and think about it. Yeah. But yeah, so so yeah, uh, check out the Inking Out Loud Facebook group. Uh, you know, I'll I'll make a post uh, when this episode goes live. Feel free to comment. Let us know what your three favorite scenes are. Let's get the discussion going. Let's see who agrees with us. I have a feeling people are going to be pretty on board with that Manetherin scene. Oh, by the yeah, way. <laughs> yeah. If they cut yeah. that out of the show, bloody murder will not be oh, off the man. table. Oh, like, <laughs> I don't give a yeah. fuck how much it costs. <laughs> like, if if that's not in the TV show, they're going to alienate like eighty percent of their audience immediately. Just like, like that. Just oh. like that. Exactly. Now, Pat, it looked like you had wanted to say something just before. I just have two brief things to close off my oh, whole right. view of this book. And so they, like they, both have, they both have to do with the end. First and the quickest one is that, God, Agonor and Balthamel are useless. <laughs> yeah, that's like, where one, one of my net closing points is going to go. Continue, I, my friend. Like, I've glowed about this book a lot, but, like, why would... I mean, they might have been the only two who were free at the time, besides Ishamael. Yeah. But... Wow, they were pathetic. Well, I yeah, see... Yeah, they were... Hold on, I so, see Agenor. He's the scientist, right? Yeah. He's the one who invented all He created all the Trollocs, he created yeah. the Murdrollocs, he created the Worms. he's one of the Forsaken. Yeah, but I see him as, like, yes. more adept no, in the lab but, no. than he is... But in here's the thing. Yeah. But they all... Here's they, the thing. Yeah, sorry, good, Rob? Ma Rain specifically says... That she's surprised she could hold off Agenor for so long because in the War of Power he stood directly under, like just underneath yeah. the Betrayer of Hope and the Lord of the Morning themselves. Like, he, he is was on, that um, close. on the level of the male channelers. Oh, I think he is he's one of the stronger ones. He's on the level of Demondred and Robin, I think. Well, maybe his dexterity is pretty bad. It's like plus know. plus he's just one overconfident. in the in the companion, which I admit I I probably haven't read as as assiduously as I should have considering how many errors ridiculous amounts of times I've read the rest of the series oh. uh, but they have a one power strength chart in the companion and it's and ranked very weirdly yeah it's it's strange because it's like originally numbers. um originally Robert Jordan had a scale and then he like added another scale on top of it so you have like like a rank and then there's like a parenthetical rank on like the new or on the old scale, and then like, and then there's like, uh, the whole scale is based on female channelers, so like the top rank of one for female channeler is like the highest they can go. But then there's plus ranks for male channelers, and Rand and Ashamael are like plus plus one. They're like the top, yeah. and then as I recall, it was like Demandred, Agenor, and Ravin were plus plus two. Yeah, that yeah. that stands Agenor's to reason. Up there, I guess, is the point that Drew is getting at. Like, yeah, and Samael, Balthamel, Bilal, you know, being a little lower than that. But um, again, so I mean, technicalities aside, they all should have died by rights. Oh, because hell it's yeah. two of the Forsaken. Oh, hell yeah. 
And there's one competent channeler who's extremely weak in comparison. Compared to, yep. Only in, in, in comparison. She did right. have an Angreal. She had an Angreal. But she didn't use so, it. It didn't. I was paying specific attention this time. It never once listed her actually having time to pull out that Angreal and use it. But Unless you don't need to. Well, she's it. got it in her pocket. She can use it. Yeah. Oh, that's right. You, you don't need to be holding it that's necessarily. Right. Maureen's just a drama queen earlier yeah. and wants to like impress upon the you know the peasants in the two rivers. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. On this same subject, though, I I'm, I totally agree with Pat and I had a whole point about it here. I just I'm not sure how I feel about that whole end of the book fight against the Forsaken with Agenor and Balthamal. It seemed that neither of them showed much more strength than the average Aes Sedai. Right. I mean, so- the Green Man killed one. Which yeah, we don't yeah. have a relative scale on his strength okay. as to how and much... Like, you, know, you can make an argument that Balthamel is panicking as the green man is growing vines into him. Yeah, yeah I would and panic. I, well, fun I guy. Could, yeah, sure. Of... Sure. And, you know, he yeah. does kill Semeshta. Yeah, he does. And that's, yeah, you know, that's fine. But Agenor is just kind of an idiot. So Speaking I of, will say this actually, for Agenor in his defense. Maybe not so much in his defense, but... He's also horribly incompetent later in the series. Yes. So like, no, and, like well, the dude, the dude was like a lab coat scientist, like nerd back in the Age of Legends. He's not exactly like a warrior, like Demandred or Semael. Well, well, well that's, we, you know, that's, we have yes, we have word of Jordan, right? That women are more dexterous and that men are maybe more powerful, mm-hmm. but less. You know, they can't be as complex. So I wonder... Well, that, I, I don't think that's necessarily, like, that plays in here. Like, he, he could be not dexterous at all and just, like, hit yeah, Moiraine with a hammer of yeah. fire. Okay. Blast her into okay. oblivion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it doesn't take dexterity. Take what Moiraine does well, to what are their Galau. orders, I mean, too? she just... By right, that should have happened. Oh, they yeah. were not on orders. That's a thing. Like, well, at least Agenor yeah. was there specifically to get the Eye of the World. And, and this is another one of the, like, weird, maybe not settled magic things that, yeah. like, he used the eye of the world to make himself young again. Uh. Um, and, okay, that leads directly into my second little niggle, and that's that the title of the book, the thing, the eye of the world, turns out to be kind of useless. Yeah, because it's Whoa, all used what? up. No, no. What are you the, things, about? the things that the eye of the world contains are useful. No. The eye of no, the no, world No, the eye of the world itself, was directly used to... Is not that relevant. Balzaman, well, kill. I, kill I, him, but I disagree. But, okay, but it's just the world, the one so power. Like that's you're, all. You're, it's an you're also forgetting a scene that would have been my honorable mention in my top three. Mm. That is, Rand destroyed a an unstoppable army of shadow spawn that yes. was about to okay. roll over the borderlands. Okay. With the eye of the world, I Shinar was done. I find that falling a little bit flat. How? That, that, that the, men, the men and women of the Age of Legends, when they sacrificed themselves to create the Eye of the World, the, there was very much an implication that they had a, a purpose, if not a foretelling. They may have wanted it to be used for something that it wasn't used for. Right. In you fact, know, actually, I would, you know, I'll, I'd have to double check this. Um, I know I've read a, an interview question about this. Where somebody asked Robert Jordan if the eye was used for the purpose it was intended, and I cannot remember if he said yes or no. Um, but but either way, like I I think you can't um, minimize the eye itself because it had a twofold purpose. One, it severely delayed Ish- Ishamael's plans. It prevented the. Uh, 
essentially like an unstoppable invasion of Shadow Spawn. Like Shinar was done. Shinar was screwed. Um, Kyrian was in no shape, as we see in the Great Hunt, to stop a Trolloc invasion. I mean, like that would have overwhelmed half the nations in the South before it was contained. Um, and by the time it was contained, like you know, as we see throughout the series, there were going to be more armies like that mm. following. Uh, like there's there's a, a noticeable effect through the first like four five six books where mm. the shadow spawn presence is decreased because so much was dedicated to that attack on Tarwin's Gap. Yeah, like even well, the attack the blight retreats. Yeah, miles exactly. and miles of blight retreats. Yeah, after the Battle of Balsamon. Yeah, like that that was a major loss for the shadow. Um, probably yeah. the the biggest loss they suffered until. The end of the Dragon Reborn. Yeah. Okay, then why not give it more weight? What it had, it had plenty. It, like, I think it had no, plenty of weight, no, no, I suppose. No, no, no. I feel like maybe past this book, there's not a whole lot of mention. Well, but but it's not like, much, no. Robert Jordan's no. not going to spoon yeah. feed it to you. That's my point. Is like if you're paying attention, the, the implications, the results, consequences yeah, we, are there. No, I, exa- I, I see what Lauren is saying. Yeah, thank like, you. You would think you would hear at least it would have some consequence to somebody somewhere at some time for the rest of the series. I would argue the consequence is there, although it's not stated. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, the, like we if, see yeah. it. The it's consequence is that everyone it's is still like, alive. Consider, right. consider like some of the shadow spawn attacks. Like, like we don't get another like real shadow spawn attack until the beginning of the dragon reborn and it's what like 50 trollocs yeah. in the mountains yeah and then we get another another one at the beginning of shadow rising the great hunt and there's like a couple hundred trollocs and then a couple more throughout shadow rising they're like a couple hundred each in eye of the world they put a hundred trollocs into the two rivers they had thousands set up outside of camelin like they had huge numbers of shadow spawn that they were ready to throw around until this army was killed and suddenly like instead of them getting thousands of trollocs to blockade their campground in the mountains of mist in dragon reborn they they attack with like 50 and a fade you know like like their their actual effects of of the loss of this shadow spawn army all all i'm saying is that the, the uh, consequence of the use of the Eye of the World seems it is very practical, but it's not as prophetic as something that I would have expected from the Wheel of Time. Yeah. Maybe I, I and and again like I'll I'll like dive to the defense of this. Um, the Eye of the World is not in the prophecies of the dragon. No. The Eye of the World was like kind of a, an afterthought. Moiraine wasn't concerned about the Eye of the World until 600 pages into this book when she gets three stories corroborating evidence that, oh, wait a second, the Eye of the World might be something that Shadow's going after. We gotta go protect it. You know, like, it, it, it was in many ways throughout the history of this, in the lore, an afterthought. It was a, it was a legend. It was like, oh, you go see the green man and you can check out the eye of the world while you're there it's like almost yeah. a tourist spot well it's it's interesting that he's sent to protect this when there are other things in the series that almost destroy rand that he could have been sent to protect or or i don't True. know what, well what? and the fact that the Aes Sedai who made it like sacrificed their lives to make it yeah like yeah, lends, that, that lends a lot serious. of like 
yeah, they wouldn't just and do that on a whim. You know, certainly, they and I'm sure they didn't. And and again, had Rand not had the eye of the world, he would have died yeah. now. Yeah, you know, that's so like, true. it was important. That's something the pattern could weave. I I certainly see. The ice, you know, the pattern nudging oh, the oh, ice yeah, to do yeah. that, so Rand I, would have had the thing at the right time, so he would, you yeah, know. Yeah, 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 But anyway, so but those were just two very <laughs> like supposed to be minor things <laughs> that, <laughs> I wanted, that that I always uh, vaguely think about when I read this book. But the, neither of them are deal breakers, and right, yeah, that's fair. Hmm. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I've got a couple more me. things. Uh, Lauren, do you have any oh, sorry, like last thoughts? <sighs> no. Oh, I want to say yes, but we've we've talked okay. about just about everything. Rob, do you have any like final I, thoughts? I, I still have two or three, but we can make these quick if we can. Okay. Uh, I, well, I just still want to reiterate how pissed off I am that Aganor is so useless. I feel like if that was Samael or Ravin or Mogadian or Demandred, that light that fight would have lasted about four seconds. Yeah. Okay. Like, fair it enough. Just, it would it would have been it, it wouldn't have even been a contest. Okay. Not just, yeah. not only that, but so honestly. I would have loved for Agnor to do some more in the series. Like, let's have another creature. Let's have something crazy come out of sure. him. I don't that know. I'm, cool. I'm kind of and down with him just becoming a meme. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Well, like, going forward with that exact kind of sentiment, uh, there was something I noticed from Agnor's own mouth, actually, that, again, until this read, I just hadn't even caught onto that little, that little hint there, or that little nugget of gold. And that is when he says to Moiraine at the Eye of the World, he goes, The seals weaken, Aes Sedai. Like Ishamayel, we walk the world again, and soon the rest of us will come. I was too close to this world in my captivity, I and Balthamel. Too close to the grinding of the wheel. And then this is where it gets good. But soon the great lord of the dark will be free and give us new flesh. I, those last four words, give us new flesh, and then the world will be ours once more. I cannot believe that I wasn't until this read-through that I realized he meant that literally. Because, of course, later in the series, Osengar and Arangar. I just, I just, it, it, boom, it just blew my mind. And here oh, I am man, reading yeah. it for like the hundredth time and I just caught on to that. So I just wanted to give a shout out to that, that little uh, nugget that I found. Um, I wanted to ask Drew one thing uh, about just the canon of the Wheel of Time that I don't really remember. And that is the word, okay, the worms. Oh, uh, we know that they are uh, we, they are a creation of Agnor. We know that they were created during the War of the Shadow. They have another name. I, I think it was Grandel or Samael. That, that Jumara. That, uh, yeah. Jumara. Or Jumara. Thank you with the J. And I know for uh, that we that we actually in an you know a deleted scene that I still haven't read to this day. Uh, River of Souls. Yeah. Again, for our listeners, if you uh, support us on Patreon, you can get access to our short episodes, and we will be covering River of Souls. Oh yes, good because that's the, that's what I'm just that's what I'm referring to here. Um, what the hell are these worms? Like, what what is that creature? Are they that dangerous? I'm, yes. I'm just gonna I, I'm just gonna say read and find out because you haven't read River of Souls. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Okay. Is it gonna spoil? Okay, is it's gonna? It's better I find out. Read and find out. We have some read hints. Find out. We have some hints about that. them later though too, where they're like, oh, those are just they're oh, yeah, not they're fully larvae. developed. Yeah, they're yeah. they're not evolved. Yeah, worms they're, they're, are are unevolved Jumara. Yeah, and apparently in River of Souls we see a fully evolved. We do. Jumara. That's okay. So that's cool. I wanted. To, I'm looking way more forward to that. Um, I wanted to ask you about the that dagger that the the lady Cyane tries to kill. 
uh, Matt and, and Rand with? The dagger that smokes when it's stuck into wood? I, like, what the hell is that? I figured that was Thakandar steel. Okay. Could be a Tyrangriol. Uh, that's that's, that's what I was thinking. Tyrangriol, perhaps, but it still doesn't... I, mean, I, like, I figured it was, it was like, Shadow Rot, Thakandar. Perhaps. Okay, yeah. Um... Oh, and another during that exact same scene, just after the assassination attempt, there was another little throwaway line that I loved hearing, and that was when Matt asks Rand, just after he's recovering from his sickness, "Can you walk?" To which Rand replies, "Walk, blood and ashes, I will run." Right, because we get that exact same exchange between those exact two individuals three books later in the Shadow Rising, as they're in Ruidion, and. This time it's Rand asking Matt, can you walk? Because he just got hanged. He's like, walk, blood and ashes, I will run. And they start running, you know? I just thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, So I, I have yeah. a couple of final thoughts. Uh, one yep. super, super quick. I just find it hilarious how Robert Jordan built like a... Uh, just, just like a cultural norm where you're a shitty innkeeper if you're skinny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. Like, like Rand walks into an inn and sees the innkeeper's fat, and he's like, "Oh, thank goodness." Well, that's, <laughs> like, that's directly after Samuel Hake, though. Like, can you yeah, name yeah. the guy? <laughs> but, 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 but if you pay attention throughout the series, like it, it stays true to form. Yeah, um, means their food isn't very good if they're not fat. That's yeah, all yeah. I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but my other one actually again ties to the forthcoming TV show, and. This was another like honorable mention scene for me. Um, it's that scene in the library in the Queen's Blessing where uh, like Matt has been healed and they're all gathered in there and Rand says loyal can stay and and they're having this discussion and figuring out what's going to happen. And this one scene, like maybe even more than the Manethrin story, is to me uh, emblematic of Moiraine's character. The way she walks over to the fireplace and turns around and dominates the room as she's talking through the information and getting new information and her body language is described as like, you know, when when Loyal mentions the, uh, uh, the man we find out later is Jane Farstrider returning to the steading with the information about the eye of the world. And then Perrin says, that's what the Tinker said too. And Maureen is described as being totally still and only her head moved. And she just looks at Perrin. Oh yes. Uh, yeah. And, you know, and, and that was so creepy. Almost. As I was reading this scene, God, Maureen's so awesome. <laughs> as I was reading oh, this right? scene, I found myself picturing Rosamund Pike. Yes, yes, I was doing it the entire time we were reading this book. And and that was the one where I was just like, okay, yeah. Like, I liked the casting of Rosamund Pike from the get-go as Maureen, but in that scene, I fell in love with it. Where I'm like, if, they don't, do if they don't include this scene in the show, I'm going to be so sad because it would be brilliant getting to see her pull off Maureen's body language and attitude and demeanor in this moment. Yeah. So like I'm I'm very excited for that. That's something that I'm Same. I'm looking forward Still, to almost yeah. more Super than you stoked. know some of the big action scenes and stuff like that. Yeah. Now how when we will have to pay close attention to how they do the subtle things. 
rather than the big things. That'll be more indicative of their whole show making philosophy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So but yeah, so so that's my uh my last thought. So I think it's uh probably about time to move into the final draft, yeah. Uh, I just actually I just thought of one more question I wanted to ask you oh. while you were talking there. We'll make this really quick if we can. <laughs> that voice that speaks to Rand at the end. Oh. The creator. It's yeah. the creator. Yeah. The creator. We can agree on that. that yeah. It, it no other option. Any other opinion should not no be. Arts. We'll discuss this. That, so like that's their philosophy. We've seen the dark one exhibit at this point, right? Like. There, we'll discuss this at the end of the series in a memory of light um, because it ties in there. There, there is. Um, the information we know and the answers we've been given from Team Jordan, uh, there is no possibility for it to it to be the Dark One. Yeah, it's no possibility cool. for it to be the Dark cool. One. All right. Well, if we're going into the final draft, I actually have a final draft pick that kind of follows right along on the heels of this exact uh, subject. Perfect. So, what I brought today is. Let's see here. I, I I found this at the local grocery store. This is a country Kolsch. I have no idea what that means. So yeah, oh. a, a Kolsch is a is a German style beer uh, yeah, from, okay, cool. from Köln, and uh, it's it's like a very light, um, like grainy, like weedy kind of. I did get that. Yeah, I definitely did. It um, says elegant yellow fruits, floral, lemongrass. That's what they're uh, brewing this with, apparently. Um, from Blythe, Ontario. This is uh, here from Cowbell Brewing Company. It's actually called Absent Landlord, hmm. which I figured kind of matches with our theme of the creator and refusing to take a hand. Oh, all right. I events. like that. Nice. <laughs> Very nice. What are you guys drinking? So all three of us are actually drinking the same beer. Ooh. Uh, yeah, we got a six-pack of this guy. Uh, we're, it's an Imperial Stout from Boulevard Brewing Company in Missouri. And, uh, and you know, this ties in, you know, back to that theme that I talked about, about how like the characters have to confront truths about themselves, unwanted truths. Mm. And this is called dark truth. And so ah. like my impression of this beer is, you know, like it's a dark truth. It's a, I like that. It's a pretty hefty Imperial stout. I'll um, say it's what is 9.7%, uh, very roasty. Very uh, uh, smoky. You almost get like a smoked ham kind of uh, kind of flavor from it. It's it's not like as like thick and decadent as some you know bourbon barrel stouts or anything like that. But uh, it's not a chewable beer. But there's definitely like this almost dry aftertaste. Yeah. That lingers with you, not in a bad way. Just yeah. Yeah, Lauren, what do you think? Okay, so. I like how sweet it is up front, and it takes a while to get to the bitter notes. It's, it's I don't know, it's a good beer it's a from process. Boulevard. It's a journey. Yeah, yeah, and it's got a good full body, which, like, is my problem with a lot of stouts that fall short is the body. Yeah. Journey before destination, because uh, the journey uh, is a great beer, and the destination is a always find hangover. a way to bring Sanderson back into the Inking Out Loud podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, oh, oh, uh, I just thought of one more actually question about the green man. I think it was that I had. Oh, um, he had. Oh, that's right. So he had mentioned. Oh, Matt asks to see Avendasora. He wants to see the tree of life. Mm -hmm. And then, rather than immediately answering Matt, first the green man does something weird, and that is he looks at Rand and he gives him an odd look. Yeah. And then he turns back to Matt and answers. Is that because of? 
Because he looks like an Aiel. The fact man. that he, well, he looks like an Aiel man, and Rand, you know, we, we know that Aventasora is in the the Tree of Life is in Ruidion. Yeah, right? it's in the Aiel waste. So that's why he stopped and looked at Rand. Like, is this guy for real? Like, yeah. Okay, I just yeah, I wanted to make sure I was understanding that correctly. There's a cool little detail that again, until this read through, read through, I did not pick up. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly what it was. Sweet, good to know I was right. Yeah, so. Unless anybody has any final, <laughs> yeah, final, no, I just, final thoughts. I keep thinking of new ones, yeah. <laughs> I just can't let this go. We're doing the Wheel of Time. I'm so excited. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so this has been episode 28 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Yeah. And next up, uh, we will be going straight into The Great Hunt, book two of the Wheel of Time. And for that episode, we'll be covering the first 23 chapters of The Great Hunt. Uh, uh, chapter 23 is called The Testing. And we will be stopping at the end of that. Um, so yeah, you know, if you've been if you've been enjoying this, uh, you know, we appreciate your support. Check us out on Patreon. We will be doing our next uh, Patreon exclusive short episode on the strike at Shale Ghoul as well, the uh, historical piece that Robert Jordan wrote about the end of the Age of Legends. And yep, if you yep, want yep. early access to our forthcoming Wheel of Time episodes, again, you can you know get that on our patreon there um i am your host drew mccaffrey with me is my co-host rob santos yeah and our very special guest lauren mccaffrey hey guys and our sound engineer pat mccaffrey walk in the light <laughs> <laughs> oh, our, our white cloak patrick mccaffrey and uh yeah so thanks for joining us and we'll catch you next time see you later everyone <laughs>